Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, Typology Tribe, Ian Cron here at the home of Anthony Skinner, my producer, engineer, my friend, yes, my muse, my spirit animal. Hey, just happy to be here with my brother, the one and only Ian Cron. <laughs> we are here for another episode of Looking at Life Through the Lens of the Enneagram, my friends, and uh, just just talking about the mystery of the human personality and speaking mm. of the mystery of the human personality anthony how are you buddy i'm doing well how are you doing ian well i'm in between trips but yes. but, but feeling good i uh you know just was in indianapolis last weekend and guess what? i'm going back again for a whole different one this weekend then to evansville you and i are jetting all over the place these days you were in california i was just in california just got back yep out there for a week you had your photo shoot to had <laughs> <laughs> had my photo shoot, did a little songwriting yeah. in LA and up in, in NorCal and did my photo shoot Hold in on. LA. I have to do my FM radio voice when I say that. <laughs> you did your photo shoot. You did your photo shoot. In the desert. Yeah. Oh. So tell me about your travels. So, yeah, I mean, well, okay, so traveling for me, uh, do you have trouble packing? I have a terrible time packing, even well, for short trips. And okay. I, I mean, I travel all the time and it still takes me like all day to pack. So I felt ridiculous on this trip because I could have packed in a duffel bag, but I had two huge suitcases and a hat case. You had a hat case? A hat case with three fedoras in it for okay, my photo th- shoot. For, for my photo shoot. <laughs> I mean, dude, we live in Nashville, Tennessee, where every other person is a guitar player or but a songwriter or a photographer yes, doing design. No, I had to go to L. I love L.A. Ah, little Randy, Randy Newman. Newman. All right, I got that. Okay, so Ian, what is your greatest challenge when you're packing? I'll tell you what I have trouble packing. Okay. Books. Because I, there you. are so I many books. so with you. Right? And it's I hate like Kindle. People pick up my backpack and they go, what the? I know. People pick I've up my like Kindle and do that. In my- <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank God for my iPad because it's changed my life, but I still right. have books in my Well, backpack. I don't like I don't like Kindle, so I have to carry book books, yeah, right? Yeah. So what are you reading right now? What have you been taking on trips? What's what's been what's been next to your hotel b- bed? Yeah, so I had two books with me on this trip. One was Johnny Cash Forever mm-hmm. Words, mm-hmm. The Unknown Poems. Uh, another was Every Riven Thing, Christian oh. Wyman. Great. Who I heard an amazing interview on um Krista Tippett? Yes. On being? Yes. Oh, and then got a chance to meet him with you in uh, Connecticut yeah. afterwards. So, Well, I think one of our, truly our finest American, living, living American poets. Oh, what a gift and such a rare talent. Yeah, a frightening talent. Every ribbon thing. Beautiful work of poetry. In his book, My, my, uh, my Bright Abyss. Oh, yeah. That year I thought was the finest piece of spiritual writing I'd read in, in years and years and years. My, my Bright Abyss. And what a voice. He has a special ownership in even other people's poems when he reads them. There's oh, something... oh, yeah. I mean, that, I mean that, that's the real deal right there. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's all, that's all in. So great. So tell me what you're reading. Yeah, I'm reading one book that would surprise you. 
Okay. Okay. But I've loved it. It's written by a guy that was the head of the FBI's international, the guy who negotiates the release of people who've been kidnapped hostages. or hostages and stuff. He's a hostage negotiator. His uh, name is Chris Voss and it's called Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. And uh, it was just pretty riveting. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's like totally um, not in my lane, but I love it. And stories from his uh, experiences it, or what? It is, but it's also, how do you negotiate? Part of the premise of the book is that every day you're negotiating for hostages in your life. Mm, Do you know what I mean? Like you're, you're negotiating all day Whoa. long and sometimes with, with high, you know, a lot of yes, consequences lot involved, of if it doesn't go I your way. That. Right? Yeah. Lots, lots of stake. So wow. I found it so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, there was an interview with him on uh, mm -hmm. Barnum Street's podcast and it's, he was fantastic on it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, today on the show, uh, we have a guy coming on. He's a good friend of mine. I'm proud to say, uh, who who wrote a book years ago that whether you liked it or not, doesn't matter, it arguably left a seismic impression um, on the planet, you know, but particularly in the in the realm of uh, spirituality, right? Wow. Uh, his name is Paul Young. He wrote oh, yeah. he wrote the Shack, and Paul, you'll hear in this show, is a remarkable. Shh human being i met him a few times heard him speak a few times yeah draw dropping every time yeah well i have to say you know it doesn't matter whether you'll, you know you have some like theological issues with right. you know so what you know yeah that's not the point the point is, is that this is a human being mm. whose heart and soul are fascinating mm -hmm. and are also enriching I, I have a special you. place of affection in my heart for Paul and I, I really don't want to waste anybody's time uh, I mean, he's got a bunch of other novels you know the novel Eve and then Crossroads and here's the big one I want people to know about he just wrote a book that, that uh, uh, we're going to talk about uh, on the episode called Lies We Believe About God and that, that came wow. out uh, this past year maybe just last year maybe in 2017 that's very very good He's a dear soul, and um, I, I do. I have a I have a little room in my heart, the Paul Young room, that, 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 <laughs> that he, so he gets a special place in the mansion of my heart. Yeah, and uh, I I just know people are going to love the show. And here's the deal: this is a two part podcast, and during this show, he and I he 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 comes into the show not knowing his number. Okay, he, he's not sure if he's a nine or a seven. And so during the show, like we actually start working our way toward figuring it out on the basis of all the conversation we're having we actually get into it we actually nail it in the second uh, episode uh, of this two-part series so you have to listen through the first oh yeah you to totally do and, but but everything that gets covered i mean every time he opens his mouth well you'll see i don't want to talk about it anymore let's get to it my friends anthony skinner all my friends out there this is paul young author of the shack more importantly my friend My friend, Paul Young, welcome to Typology. Ian, it's so good to see you. I missed you since we went fishing. I know. Back in July, we were in Montana. What was the name of that? On oh, the Bighorn, right? Is that the... Uh, yeah, the Bighorn. Yep. The Bighorn. Yep. First time I've ever fly fished in my life. Yeah. And by the way, as I recall, you caught more fish than I did. How many How many did you catch? You remember? More than you. Yeah. And that's uh, all that mattered. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I also caught a big brown on my first cast ever. Yeah. And that's hard because there's not a lot of browns in that river. They're all rainbows, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. 
So it was awesome. It was like, yeah. all right, got me hooked right there. No pun well, intended. You know that I'm an Enneagram 4 and that our deadly sin is envy, don't you? <laughs> but, you know, the whole point of knowing your Enneagram is so that you can deal with it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for affording me that opportunity. <laughs> well, you know, backhanded grace is sometimes the best kind. <laughs> and we got to room together. Yes, we did. And, and I really like you. Just, you know. Well, just in case you didn't. The feeling is mutual. You're a you're a kindred spirit, and uh, our mutual friend uh, Michael Cusick, who's been on the on the on our podcast uh, before, he told me that he was not so long ago at a Richard Rohr uh, hosted conference in New Mexico, at which you gave one of the plenary talks, and he just said to me, from the moment Paul opened his mouth until the end, I wept. Mm. What well, on he's earth a did ten, you He's what a tender a, heart. He is. Well, what did you talk about that was? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> In fact, that's another thing he told me. He said, I don't think Paul knows what he's going to say until he stands up. I don't. And even then, I'm kind of like, all right, see where this goes. I, I'm For the last 10 years, even when I thought I knew what I was going to talk about, I was almost always wrong. Really? And uh, Yep. Yep. And it's one of those things where... I'm finally at a place where I'm comfortable enough in my own skin that I don't have to, you know, one, plan it out, and two, I get to trust, because that's been my journey anyway, is learning right. how to trust. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I trust that, you know, the Holy Spirit knows who's there, and I don't have to have that figured out. And so it changes every single time. It's different. Um, wow. That was a remarkable conference, because it was such an, a mix of people from those who are disengaged from religious institutions to a lot of coming from the Catholic side and, and a bunch of uh, sort of post-evangelical evangelicals and uh, modern evangelical. Um, and um, so it was, it was great. And it was on the Trinity. So it was, and you know what, here's the cool thing. I don't think that the Catholics have ever really seen a Protestant storyteller, you know? Wow. And so what, how do you think that affected them? Well, it, um, Cynthia Bougeau, who was one of the speakers, yep. who is a fantastic human being, she comes up afterwards. She's all excited. You know how she is. She's like mm -hmm. a child in an elderly woman's body. And she's like, Paul, Paul, this is like a new art form <laughs> because oh I didn't sit behind a desk. Right. Yeah. So I was I was moving chairs around and I was talking and I was uh, whatever, telling stories. And it was it wasn't what they were used to. So I think sometimes. When somebody comes in from outside your history and perspective, it allows you to hear things differently. Mm. And uh, and I think it was just partly timing and partly that um, it, it it worked. It was beautiful, and on so many different levels, it was beautiful. But it was I, a great conference. You know, I am um, one of the things that I uh, so appreciate about you is number one, your gift for holding space which I think is like one of the most important things uh, a, a speaker can do, especially when they're sharing from deeply from their own hearts mm. yeah, to hold the space in a way that people feel safe and they trust you very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, secondly, obviously storytelling. I mean, it, you know, Richard, who I adore as a human being, oh, a de great debt of gratitude, love him personally. He's not a storyteller. No, I mean, it's not. How, it's not, not what he does. I mean, nope. you know, it's not his his charisma. It, so, uh, you know, yours is. I've seen you speak a couple of times, and 
the story part, all of the vast majority of which are true. I mean, they're not fable, uh, are incredibly powerful. So anyway, that's I, your, I love, I love your use of holding space because that's how I see good creative work. Um, that good creative work, uh, creates more space than it uses. Mm. And, um, and I think fiction does that in a way that nonfiction can't, because a lot of times nonfiction's intent is to actually reduce space, not to, not to create or open it up. But yeah. fiction just open, and, and this is true with art of any sort, really, if it's good art and not propaganda, which yes. sadly us religious folks, especially yep. in the modern evangelical side of things, have not done a good job with, with art. We've constantly tried to turn it into propaganda. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you do that, you don't have any art left. You know, you've got manipulation and objectification and all kinds of other destructive things. But I think good art just opens space up because it fundamentally trusts that the reader or the person who watches uh, can hear for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's hugely respectful. So that's a great compliment, and I appreciate it deeply. Thank you. Well, I, you know, I've only written one, one – well, actually, two works of fiction if you include a memoir – <laughs> you know, <laughs> all history is fiction anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, people always say, "Yeah, all all novels are are memoirs, and all memoirs are fic- are novels." But the the thing I love about what you just said about art and about story and fiction is that it's what D- Emily Dickinson said, right? Which is, "Tell all the truth, but tell it slant." Yeah, uh, that yeah. idea that don't don't come in the front door where people's uh, critical minds can filter out their whatever they're they're already biased against and then secondly she she hits the end and she said you know uh that the truth must dazzle gradually Mm. isn't that good it's so good that's so good i um ravi zacharias tells us he's an apologist and he tells the story of malcolm muggridge and Mm. muggridge was the editor of punch magazine most of his life was an atheist and and uh, skeptic and all Mm -hmm. that and then had a marvelous encounter with jesus so um, this, I'm telling this because we're in the, th- the aftermath of Billy Graham's slipping through the veil, right? So Billy Graham was coming to London to do a big uh, convention, and Ravi was in Malcolm's garden and says to Malcolm Muggeridge, so, you're going to go listen to Billy? Uh, and he says, M- Muggeridge is, you know, he's, I don't know, 70 by this time or 60-something, and he says, Oh, good chap, that Billy. Uh, just not subtle enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the same kind of ideas that Dickinson is using, right? Yeah. And and add to that Lewis's comment about how fiction has a way of slipping past our watchful dragons. Mm-hmm. Which is the same concept, you know. We when we're dealing with somebody's ideas in a nonfiction sort of format, and it's argumentative because that's that's what we evangelicals know how to do best. Um, we don't allow it to actually say anything to us. Mm. We're just preparing our counter argument where, where fiction, and this happened with the shack, uh, um, is uh, a writer, who was it? Uh, president of Denver Seminary mm-hmm. wrote an article, said, I don't care what kind of uh, Pharisee you are, but didn't you for just a second want to be inside of Papa's embrace when she came out onto the porch? Mm. And And what he's saying is, that art has a way of attacking us through the heart before it gets submerged by the mind. And I think a lot of times in our lives, 
we have become so rationalistic and intellectually based that we have no capacity for mystery or ambiguity. Mm. And the invitation of art is into mystery and ambiguity, as is every relationship. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, you've said so much there that I'm sorry I've had so much coffee because I'm about to jump out of my skin. I'm so excited. Uh, and and I, the, I'm already getting some clues, I mean, uh, about your type, because I know that y- you are struggling between whether or not you're an Enneagram type nine or seven, nines being peacemakers, sevens being enthusiasts. Uh, and so maybe by the end of this interview, we can actually this conversation, we can we we may actually find out which which of those you are. See, and I love that. See, I love being around people who know stuff that I don't, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, me it's too. one of the greatest joys of my life. Yeah. And I, I used to have to know everything and perfectly. Mm. <laughs> it was such a pain and it took up so much energy and uh, to not to not be that, to have that uh, childlike curiosity in my life, mm. you know, and I have lots of grandkids, so they teach me all the time, which is great. So now. Wow. Okay. So one of the things you just said, and then I want to jump in some, some Enneagram stuff, but I just, I've got to comment on this because it's been so exciting to me. I, I, I recently was studying uh, again after years, the, the, the transcendentals, uh, Aquinas and, uh, of course, earlier, but Aquinas did more work with them, but beauty, truth, and goodness. And just this idea that, you know, um, God is uh, ultimately, ultimate truth, ultimate goodness, ultimate beauty. They themselves are a trinity. Uh, you cannot yep. have one without the other, other two. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, up until now, evangelicals, the Protest- Protestants in general, have relied on truth and goodness as a way of talking about God, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but of course, you can always argue about those two things. You can argue about what is good, right? Ethics, or you can argue about uh, what is true, right? Which uh, maybe yeah. sermons or theology, but you can't really talk. Uh, beauty is not uh, beauty is its own defense, right? It, it yeah, uh, so. It's the only and it's, one. And it's beauty that will save the world. Yes. Thank you, Dostoevsky. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. Oh, he, he, had a, he had a handle on that. He sure did. Well, people know you principally, or at least uh, in the early days, as the, the author of The Shack, uh, which had such a profound impact on the world. Uh, I, I'm not sure I know of a book in my lifetime, actually, a work of fiction for sure, that had as, I mean, oh, I mean, a meteoric sort of, you know, a seismic effect on the conversation uh, about the nature, the person of God, about forgiveness, uh, and also the maybe the most controversial book I know uh, on those topics. And now, most major motion picture, Octavia Spencer, uh, and uh, was it Sam Worthington? Is that the other? Yep. Right? Yep. Sam, and then. Uh... But the whole cast was fantastic. Mm. Aviva Lush from Tel Aviv, a Jew playing Jesus. I mean, who would have thought about that, right? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we think it might be the first time. And, yeah. and here's, here's how my, some of my evangelical family uh, approached that whole thing. How dare you make Jesus a Middle Easterner? <laughs> oh, my so gosh. My Why family. doesn't he have blonde hair and blue eyes? I know, because we've seen him in the movies, right? Yeah, and, he could have uh, been Macaulay so, Culkin. Why didn't you have Macaulay Culkin play Jesus in this movie? No, he could have, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other actors I wouldn't want either, but... Uh, yeah, oh my gosh. Um, 
But but and then Sumi, who is a Japanese Hawaiian, Alisa Braga from Brazil, who plays Sophia. Um, Tim McGraw, I thought was fantastic. Oh boy, uh, Rod Mitchell also. So I mean, the cast was was and have Graham Greene be Papa as a male? Come on, First mm. Nations person. I thought, oh, the last thing we need is at the end of the movie to have Papa come through the door as a white Gandalf with a attitude, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. I just so I, I thought want... the movie did fantastic. When we were away together in in Montana, we had, there was a couple other guys there, and you know we each night a couple of us shared story uh, about our own stories with each other. And uh, your story is particularly important uh, for context. You know, I mean, a lot of times I have people on and I get data points about their past, but uh, first of all, your, your story is you you tell your story so beautifully. It's a dramatic and painful uh, story uh, to hear. Right. Mm. Um, And, um, so for the for context of our conversation and, and it deserves far longer uh, in terms of time but if you could just give us give give our listeners just a 50,000 foot flyby because I, I mean they know you as the author of Shack. Cool. I want them to know you just a little bit deeper about your history and we'll keep jumping right into the Enneagram as we go sure so born Canadian in Grand Prairie Alberta uh, my father uh, came from a very dysfunctional destructive background. I mean, he was orphaned at 12, at 14. He ran away from the farm labor that he was uh, put into and entered the logging camps at 18, had a massive conversion experience with Jesus, walked right into Bible school where he meets my mom, who's already a registered nurse. And so he didn't come into the situation with any kind of a capacity to be a dad, but he had a real heart for God and he had a real heart for mission. And he's a... He was a hunter-trapper. That's how his dad had trained him, even by 12, so very pioneer-oriented. And um, so I'm a year old. We move across the other side of the world to the highlands of New Guinea into a culture that had never seen a white person before. Um, 20 to 40,000 members of the tribe over about 100 square miles. And New Guinea has over 800 unrelated language groups. And uh, I know it's a... uh, they're looking for the Tower of Babel somewhere in the mm-hmm. middle of all that. And uh, but um, uh, warring Stone Age tribal spirit worshiping, and I was really the first person in that whole area to know the language. In fact, I was the informant for Wycliffe when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. I was also raised Donnie because this is back when missions was uh, the parents do the work of God, and somehow God will mysteriously take care of the kids. And so of my generation, many of us were slaughtered on the altar of the mission of God's purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it was a so my great sadnesses revolve around three basic things um, and a, a very difficult relationship with my father, who was uh, just this angry young man who, you know, a generation that didn't know they had baggage and wouldn't have known what to do with it if they'd have known. Um, my mother, who was very passive in, in the background, but my dad was a, an abusive disciplinarian. Then uh, sexual abuse began in, in the tribal culture for me well before I was five. By the time I was six, I was already really bent. And, um, and then at six, uh, yanked out of that culture, put into boarding school on the coast. And uh, um, that was uh, a monumental crisis event because at six years old 
I mean, I'm already trying to figure out what in the world's going on. But now I'm pulled out of my family and my color. You know, I didn't identify with my parents as my parents. Um, the tribal people were the ones that raised me. And then now at six, I'm in a world where the big boys came at night and molested the little boys. And so sexual abuse just, it seemed to be endemic to the world. And um, and at that point, I lost my color. I lost my my affiliation with the tribe, a sense of family, a sense of all this belonging. And so belonging was now gone. And for survival purposes, uh, along with my disassociative skills that I'd already adopted, mm-hmm. um, came performance orientation. That was the way I tried to I tried to perform my way into the affection not only of other human beings but of God. At the same time, is that I was already completely broken um, as a child with no capacity to handle what I was doing, and and that included you know trying to trying to ferret this out through night terrors and all the other ways that that children find a way to express themselves when there is no no capacity or opportunity to. Then we're yanked at 10, I'm pulled out of that and into dropped into the middle of Canada. Uh, my dad becomes an itinerant pastor. I went to 13 schools before I graduate high school. Uh, it turns out that I'm actually smart and creative, which empowered my ability to hide. So the metaphor of the shack then becomes the house on the inside that people help you build. It becomes a place where a lot of us get stuck and we want to not go anywhere near it, even though it's our own broken heart and our own broken soul. Creates a, you know, for a, as a performer, I created a facade outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And, um, and I did the best that I could. Um, the shack is where I stored my addictions and my secrets and never wanted anybody to ever come in there. Not even Kim, who I married. And uh, so she didn't know about my inside world and how broken it was. Um, and I was hoping that if I could just perform well enough, which is perfectly, right? Because uh, perfection becomes the standard. And uh, that maybe that I could finally win the approval and the affection um, of, of someone. And uh, so you live from, from moment of kindness to moment of kindness, expecting, you know, uh, someone to penetrate in through your facade. And if that happens, then you if you're religious, you just hear God call you somewhere else. You know, you you run. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you do it in a very religiously sanctimonious sort of way. But um, but I just I didn't want to deal with it. Then at uh, 38, Kim and I have six children. She catches me in a three month affair with one of her best friends, and my whole world blows up. And I have to make the decision whether I can find help to change or kill myself Mm -hmm. because suicide had always been a companion and I think it is for a lot of us who come from my history Um, but it was you know it was the last it always offered the hope of the last way to run away before you actually had to hit the bottom and face your stuff and to me it's miraculous that I I made the decision to face my stuff and it took Kim and I 11 years to heal it took 11 years to dismantle my world and rebuild it Um, and that included every concept that I had of God, because my view of God was based on the theology and experience that my father had presented. And so I had a very 
disastrous theology that I think a lot of people have adopted over the last few hundred years, and uh, coupled with the experience of, uh, of the breaking um, in my relationship with my dad and what that meant, and plus then the, the uh, disassociative power of sexual abuse, uh, the fragmenting of the human soul, mm. all of that, you know, and it's just like, cow, is there anything... Is there anything actually that's real about me at all? Because, you know, what are you supposed to do? Go back to before you're five years old and figure this out, yeah. right? And, uh, and you know, through therapy, uh, my friend Scott Mitchell, who became my therapist, through um, uh, letting people in, through Kim's fury, and, and let me be very clear, I tell people I married the wrath of God, thankfully. <laughs> you know? But uh, part, part of it was the intensity of her fury that saved me, you know, and I think the love of God is the fury of God, opposed to anything that is uh, in the one that God loves that is incapacitating or destructive. God is opposed to anything that is not of love's kind. And for those of us who want to hold on to our darkness, that is hell to us. That presence of affection and love while we want to hold on to our darkness, that penetration of light into the, into the pitch black is painful for us. Mm. And, uh, but it is his, his love. And uh, it is that relentless, fiery fury that I feel as a parent toward anything that would hurt the ones that I love, mm. my child or my grandchild. So I know where that fury comes from. Mm. And uh, it's the right response to things that are wrong. So... You know, out of that, uh, and there's lots more pieces, as you know, but out of that, Kim is the one who says, you know, someday write something as a gift for our kids. Puts in one place how you think, because you think outside the box. And the year I turned 50, I finally felt healthy enough to do that. And I'd written all my life, but, you know, gifts for friends and family, poetry and songs and short stories. So I write this thing on the train to one of my three jobs and make 15 copies at Office Depot that do everything I ever wanted that book to do and and gave it to my kids and my friends got the extras and I went back to work. And who knew that uh, the kindness of God would allow me finally, in a sense, thankfully not any sooner because I, it would have destroyed me at 30 or 40, but to then participate in something that has been such an an icon and a monument of grace, evidence in my own life that God can take, you know, the brutality of the cross and transform it into something that becomes an icon and a monument of grace, mm. as it has in life. And, um, and I don't need it. That's the beautiful thing. You know, my identity is in my relationship with God. My, so is my identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love. Right? I don't need a book. I don't need a movie. I don't need any of these things. They're just smoke and mirrors. But the beauty that, of the character of God that he climbs into what we bring to the table in order to celebrate us mm -hmm. and then allow us to participate in something that we didn't even know the, the, the beauty of. What the book has done and the movie and all the other things has been an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Mm. And let uh. me tell you. That is, a, that is a, I am grateful beyond words.
because every human being is is holy ground uh, if we have eyes to see it and uh, and I've gotten a huge invitation into a landscape full of holy people that are experiencing the restorative fire of God's affection mm. and uh, you know we're surrounded by it mm. if we had eyes to see you know thank you Paul for that sort of beautiful praises of your of your story and I, I I know that people appreciate the heartfelt dimension of it that it, it I've heard you tell it on several occasions now and uh, it, it it never feels canned brother which is really saying something given how many years you've you've been asked that question and how many times you tell it and and every time I've seen you tell it you you um, exhibit real emotion you know it's not so what that tells me is, um. Well, I actually I don't want to say. I, I want to say I want to ask you a question, and it is type related. What? Where do you go? What? What? What is it that is activated in you? Because you've told that story hundred thousand times in interviews and in television, Oprah, you name it, right? Everywhere. What is it that is activated in you that it brings up that emotion? And what is it? It's present. It's it's not a past event. Right. I don't disassociate from that history. I am an expression of it. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I think God does is he doesn't deny our brokenness or deny what was done to us or deny our participation in darkness. He takes all of that and by redeeming it, weaves it into the sound that we now become. Mm -hmm. And so that it is present with us in the moment. And uh, and I can't I can't disassociate myself from that. It's Mm -hmm. uh it's too precious to lock it into a memory. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I carry that with me. And it's not a burden. It's, it doesn't exhaust me. Um, it's, just, it's, uh, it's just real mm-hmm. in the moment. I was looking up, uh, I had this quote at the very end of the book. Um, it's by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It's the little mm-hmm. poem, and Earth's crammed with heaven, mm-hmm. and every common bush afire with God. With God but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Yeah, it's a great quote. It's a great, great, great poem. Yeah, that's that. The mystic's vision, right? The capacity to see God in all things. The urgent immediacy of God's uh, presence in and through all things. Yeah. So um, when you were 20, because uh, mm-hmm. what I heard of what you just said was that your identity prior to this crash, uh, that, that it, it sounded to me like you were saying, I'm not sure I had an identity, uh, or a sense of identity, right. That uh, perhaps yeah. an anxiety that there was nothing behind the facade. Right. So, so everything was, everything felt like I was faking everybody out. Right. So right? when the even, facade even came the down, things. did you, you were afraid that there was holy crap, there's nothing here. Like, like right. I'm, I'm actually a, uh, fraud. Number two, uh, there's, I'm an empty suit behind this mask. Is that, is that yeah. kind of what you were feeling or? Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and I didn't face that until about four months into therapy after mm-hmm. everything had crashed and burned. And Scott had told me that it was coming. You know, he said, everybody bails out right before the really hard stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I hit the really hard stuff. And when that happened and I was looking into the abyss and going like, what? 
you know, I don't know if there is one thing that is actually true about me, mm. you know, because because the overarching thought throughout my whole life was I'm a fake, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a fake. And now I'm facing it. And let me tell you, that moment in and that is when my hope left. Mm. And that was the worst moment of my existence. Oh, and uh, and it lasted until I made the decision to kill myself. And then everything settled down. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and I did. I, I, I planned a trip to Mexico City because maybe the only thing Paul Young could ever do in his entire life was to kill himself far enough away from his family so his kids didn't find his body mm-hmm. to make sure of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was the plan. But yeah, total. Uh, and, you know, what I found all these years later is that there was a lot of things that were good and right and beautiful, but they were so wrapped up into the, the dark strands that I couldn't extricate the truth from the darkness. So I didn't know. And uh, that became a point of trust, you know, that there was a seed in there somewhere, even so small, I couldn't see it. Yes. That some grow from. Yes. And in fact, I, I, you know, someone said something to me recently and I just grabbed hold of it, wrote it down and told them I'm using it because it's great for Enneagram work. They said uh, that the, and I'm going to use my terms for it, that the Enneagram helps you uh, get in touch with and reclaim or answer the question, who were you before the world told you who you were supposed to be? Yeah. And yeah. of course, that that's what we... What a gift. Uh, it sounds like you, but you know, to get there is painful because what the world told us to be and the ways in which it told us to be that way uh, are, you know, not only they're we, painful to the point of annihilation. Not only that, we have turned our prisons into our homes. You know, we call our prisons our sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's the certainty of what we know, uh, we think we know. Yep. is what we've been told. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to let go of shame and take the risk of freedom. Freedom feels so irresponsible, you know. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it's annihilating on the one hand. But but the, even the, the what seems to be the mirage of freedom is seems so intangible that it becomes almost insurmountable. It's another way to fail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at some point, you just get tired of being a failure. Yeah. So... I'm going to ask you a question uh, that I'm not sure if anyone's ever asked you, but if if you would, could you give me two sentences that, in your mind, if you can remember, that you would have included in that suicide note? Oh, great question. Uh, I would have included... I would have included that I I understand how utterly self-centered this is. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't want, I want to own at least this. I want to own at least this. I don't want anyone else to feel responsible for this choice. Mm -hmm. Right? Because I wouldn't know, you know, it, suicide is such a destructive act, mm-hmm. not just for the self, but the ripple effect of it is profound. Yes, it is. And, you know, and 
And in that moment where you're consumed <laughs> with self-annihilation, it is all self-centered, right? Yes. And, and it's hard to think about you know, what the, what the ripple effect of your choices yeah. are. But yeah, here's the crazy thing. If there's anything that would speak to our unbelievable dignity as human beings whose choices matter, it would be the ripple effect from self-annihilation. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's such an irony yes. in, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, um, one of the things I'm picking up in our conversation here, you, you mentioned earlier that you, you, you think that you're a possibly a nine with a one wing or you're uh, possibly a, uh, a seven. One of the things that complicates this, and this would be good for uh, our, our audience, is trauma and the effect of trauma on, on personality development and theory. Uh, so I always say having, having had a suicidal father, an alcoholic father, uh, um, some of similar abuse issues to yours, albeit violence and uh, all that stuff. You know, I, I think personality, just uh, the defensive nature of the personality thickens. It's just thicker on people with trauma. The staircase is steeper, you know, that we have to climb. And, you know, life's unfair. Sorry, people, you know, you got to play the ball where it drops, you know. And and so you, you have to make peace with that. Stop asking the question. This You're saying, you know, this isn't fair. That That's just a waste of time after a while. But one of the things I'm picking up in you that's so interesting is there's a feature of what you're describing that is neither nine or seven, possibly. Mm -hmm. the, the heart triad, which is twos, threes, and fours, the helpers, the performers, and the achie or the achievers, sometimes they're called, and fours, the individualists, which all three operate with a, uh, a hidden unconscious belief, you know, that's down. It's like a, a line of bad code, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it's corrupting the whole system. Uh, so for twos, it would be, uh, you know, that in order to be loved, I have to meet the needs of others while at the same time, time denying or even acknowledging that I have needs as well. Threes would be, uh, I see a world in which people do not love you uh, for who you are inside, but only for your achievement, your accomplishments. And they have a terrible fear of failure because they, they, they really think I am what I do. And if I fail, if I don't succeed, if I don't perform well, I'm simply... Un, uh, unworthy of love and relationship. And then fours, you know, again, fours have a fear that they are missing some essential uh, piece in their makeup, can't name it. Uh, they're melancholy, pining for the, as Zen Zucht, as Lewis called it, you know, that unnameable, that longing for the unnameable. Um, and they need to be special and unique. Now, I, I say all those three because all three of those types share two things in common. One is that they can't be loved for who they are, so they all th so all three of them project images that mm. they uh, hope facades, personas, whatever we want to call them, uh, to win the love that they feel they can't win if they were themselves, right? Right. So, a little bit of what I'm hearing in your story is three which is the, their need is the need to succeed at all costs and to avoid, or the appearance of 
success, to have the appearance of success, and to avoid failure. I mean, it, it, uh, it, does, that, does that resonate with you? Or? To, to a point, um, okay. when, I did, when I did the testing part of that, um, threes didn't show up at all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what, was, what was pretty interesting, the, the thing about it is that I think a lot of that comes from my trauma. Mm-hmm. and not from what was underlying as far as a basic personality. I think I was a very free child apart from that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I was able to disassociate that part off. But then it began to dominate over time, mm-hmm. um, the disassociated part. So I don't, I don't know. I, it's definitely true that the facade and the persona, the poser, all of that, um, and the drive to... Uh, toward perfection, I think for me, was fundamentally an expression of the shame that dominated my my whole world. Yeah, you know. So twos, threes, and fours are in the shame triad. Now, here's why I'm pushing on you a little bit because I think this yeah. is awesome. Because I, I uh, I've suffered trauma. I know how it affected my personality development. I think, and and as as you have, the reason I say this is, and I'm not, I'm, I never type anybody. So I, sure. I I'm just throwing out things for you to consider. And I'll tell you why you're difficult. Threes, when um, they are healthy, start to look like healthy sixes. And the way that you describe yourself uh, as, um, what, I mean, I and I've seen you do this in action. You, your deep care for uh, you don't need to be successful. You say now. I don't no. need to, I don't need this book. I don't need this. But it sounds to me like at 20, you did. I mean, you know what I'm saying? And that's why you're glad today I needed you did something. Didn't. Yep. So right. I, I taught, I did all kinds of stuff at 20. Right. And, and I, I was a center of all kinds of attention that way too. And you sought it. Is that correct? Um, I must have because it just happened. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, I'm not sure. Did you have that instinct as a 20 year old that when you walked, because you said it earlier, when you walked into a room, you said this, I think, that you could pick up on the expectations and the values of everybody in the room. And now I'm going to add this to see if it rings with you. And then you were able to shape shift or tweak your projected image in order to win what you perceived or knew would win the admiration of that collective. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And to put it another way, is that, uh, and this is part of hypervigilance, I think, and that is I could pick up their boundaries so that I could exist within them because I didn't have any myself. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that's all very three material. Mm. Now, if you were, a, here's where you're going to, we're going to get tough, right? So you could be now a very healthy three because the personality can be healthy, unhealthy, or average sure. in the average space. So if you were a healthy three, you'd no longer need that attention. You would no longer hunger for admiration. Twos want appreciation. Threes want admiration. I mean, they really want people to be impressed, to recognize them as a success, even in their milieu, not necessarily money. Not, you know, so if you were a missionary, you just want to be the, known as the best you know, missionary, the, the star missionary in the world. It wouldn't, it's not all about money or cars or that sure, stuff. Sure, 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 sure. So you, you could be a three that 
now is so healthy that you're at the high side of six and more focused on uh, cultivating the success of others to help grow fruit on other people's trees, right? Yeah. Or you could be a nine who uh, in your health goes to the high side of three. So it's, 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 you know, I, I would, yeah, I would, I would guess that I'd be a nine that goes to the high side of three because the admiration thing wasn't, that wasn't the deal. In fact, there is something in me that doesn't, doesn't want to be in that spot. Okay. Right. So and uh, yeah. that's resisting, that resists it. Why? I don't like notoriety. I don't like platform. I don't like smoke and mirrors. It's, it, it clouds the dimension of relationship. That's today, though. What about at 20? Yeah. At 20, <sighs> I'd have said that every compliment was a new potential to fail. Mm. Right? Pressure. And so there, yeah. So there was part of that that, that it, it, was, it was the hand up and the hand beckoning. The hand resisting and the hand beckoning, right? It was, um, it was yeah, I... I am so empty that your little bits of light that you offer, kindness, affirmation, affection, they sustain me even though I don't believe they're true. Mm. They're not they're not based on you actually knowing me, they're based on my performance. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. so but I, I need them. I'm willing to enter into the mythology that it's real, even though fundamentally I don't. I would just believe that if you knew the secrets, you would not be extending any of these things toward me. Right. So, right. you know, so shame dominated all of that. And I think it clouded everything. So, right. Yeah. All right, Anthony, on a scale of one to ten, what, what, what was that episode for you? I'd say, in the words of Spinal Taps, uh, Nigel, it's eleven. <laughs> it was eleven, wasn't it? It was eleven. Yeah, the guy's yes. intense, right? Oh Paul Young gosh. is intense. Yeah. Well, I, I can just tell you this: um, next week's going to be even better. Yeah. Mm. Uh, next week, we're actually going to figure out, uh, Lord willing, his his uh, what is what his enneagram type is, and I think I might know, awesome. but it's tricky. And I think we're going to have is that the music right now? The music's playing, isn't yes. it? Yes. Can I? What is this? The Oscars? Am I being? Am I? <laughs> hold on a second. Am I? The, am I? Did I just win best sound editing? And I only have like they like they really cut you off if you got there. You if, go. If you're actually getting a big award, they don't really sh- there chase you, go. you off. It's getting by, louder. It's getting louder. It's getting louder. Okay, everybody, listen up. <laughs> In the words of the great Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Thank you. We'll see you next week, everybody. We love you. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual. 
because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.